A reading this morning is from Luke 14, 7 through 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Least someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is God's wisdom to us. Be to all. Please be seated. Would you uh, allow me to pray for us? Lord, we ask for you to be present. Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts to hear from you today. We know you love us. May we hear that message in this time we pray. Amen. You may have noticed in this passage, uh, Jesus uses two parables. Now, parables were a, a popular uh, form of teaching that Jesus used. We've been doing this series through Luke, focus on the teaching of Jesus. In fact, uh, a third of Jesus' teachings we, we find are parables in the Gospels. Of the four Gospels, John's Gospel is the only one that doesn't use parables. Jesus doesn't teach in parables. But when we look, for example, at the Gospel of Mark... Uh, we find eight parables, two of which are unique to Mark. In Matthew's gospel, there are 23 parables. Eleven of those are unique to Matthew. And in Luke, the book we've been working through since last September, there are 24 parables, 18 of which are unique to Luke. And parables are, are interesting because they're an indirect form of communication. Soren Kierkegaard wrote that parables deceive the hearer into truth. Deceive the hearer into truth. In other words, parables kind of sneak up on us and uh, tap us on the shoulder and maybe point us in a direction that we weren't considering, teaching us uh, something deeper than the simple story that the parable Includes and, and this is uh, number one, if you have your sermon guide out, you can follow along and choose to, to fill in the blanks there to help you retain, hopefully, what we're talking about. But number one is simply this. The parables are stories from everyday life intended to teach us spiritual truth. 
spiritual truth. Now, if you notice at the very beginning of our passage in verse 7, we're told that Jesus uses a parable because he was in this he was at this party and he noticed that the people there were uh, strategizing and, and, and careful where they sat for the party. Uh, they were choosing places of honor. And so Jesus chose parables to teach them, not to entertain them. Uh, he had an agenda. He was looking for a specific response. And that's always the question we should be asking when we hear Jesus teach parables. We should be asking, okay, what, Jesus, what, what are you trying to teach me? What attitude or behavior are you asking of me? And so Jesus uses these two parables in, in the passage this morning. The first one, you may have noticed, is about um, an invitation to a wedding feast. And so Jesus is using this parable to say, imagine you've been invited to this wedding. And he talks about uh, thinking about where you're going to sit because in Jesus' day, if you were invited to a wedding, there were certain places you could sit that would uh, reveal your social status and how important you were in your uh, town or community of, of people. And so it's, it's not unlike today if you were to go to a wedding. You know, oftentimes at a reception, you'll have the wedding party table, right? And there will be the bride and groom. And, and usually to uh, their right and left are, are members of the wedding party. And it's usually the bridesmaid and the best man. They get seats of honor. They get to sit closest to the bride and groom. And the same was the case for Jesus' day. There were certain seats that uh, showed how important you were, how significant you were. I mean, can you imagine if you invite a coworker to your wedding? Someone you like, they're a friend, you work with them, uh, but they're not your closest friend. Imagine they come to your wedding reception, they go sit down right next to the bride. Uh, that would be a tad embarrassing, right? And so this parable kind of uh, presents that type of scenario, and Jesus is trying to make a point that uh, in his day and time, where you sat said everything about who you were. Now, in the second parable, there's a slightly different focus, if you noticed. There, Jesus seems to be talking to the person who is hosting the party. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus uh, is not telling us we can't have a party for our closest friends. We can't have a party for our family. Uh, he's simply addressing the common occurrence that people would host a party and invite the important, the influential, the powerful. And they did that as a way to communicate how important and powerful they were as a host. And so Jesus is telling us, not only was it important where you sat at a party, it was important who you invited to your party. And that's number two in your sermon guide there, that the first parable is about people invited to a party. The second parable is about a person hosting a party. And so you remember that question I asked at the beginning is when Jesus teaches a parable, we need to ask, okay, what, be, what attitude, what behavior does Jesus want? to teach me. And so we want to ask that. What's Jesus trying to teach us with these two parables? And I, I believe that what Jesus is asking us to think about here is this point number three in your guide, 
He's asking us to consider why are we all so desperate for validation? Why are we all desperate for validation? The first parable, as we mentioned, focuses on the theme of being honored versus shamed based on where you sat, how you're perceived by others at a party. Jesus could tell as he surveyed the room, this is what people cared about in their hearts. There was this desperation that he could sense, he could smell in the room. The Greek uh, writer Plutarch tells a story uh, about his brother who hosted a party, and his brother hosted this party uh, thousands of years ago. And he invited his close friends, he invited his neighbors, he even invited foreigners who were visiting at the time. And as the story goes, that he invited everybody into the party at the same time, and he just told everybody, the host said, find a seat, sit wherever you want. And people did. But a very um, pompous uh, foreigner was coming to the party as well, and he came in dressed really uh, in fine clothing and in, in really an extravagant way. And he entered into the room, and he noticed that all the important seats were taken. And so the story goes that he left. He turned around immediately and left. And they, of course, chased him and said, no, no, please come back. And he said, no, I'm not going because there isn't a seat worthy of me left. You see, this, is, this was the common attitude in Jesus' day of how important this was. That this man's reputation was his highest concern. More important than being there with the people at the party. And in the second parable, again, honor and shame is a part of this. But it's not about being at the party. It's who you're inviting to the party. Jesus is saying, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. People didn't want to do that because they felt like it reflected on their self-worth their importance. And so Jesus is speaking to our deep, deep desire for validation and longing. And I'm using that term validation. You may have noticed it's not in the story. Uh, the words used there are, you know, being exalted and honored. And this is the fourth point in your guide. Um, I want you to see exaltation equals honor equals validation. That's how I'm using this word validation. To be exalted and honored is simply to be recognized as important, to be recognized as worthwhile. And validation holds a similar idea, but it's a word that we tend to use today more than uh, to be honored. We're all desperate to be validated, aren't we? Uh, we like to tease teenagers about being so concerned and so awkward about how they are viewed by their peers. Um, but if we're honest, we don't outgrow that, really. It just manifests itself in different ways. We, sure, we may become a little more comfortable with who we are, but many of us are still striving to be approved by our peers. We're all looking for ways to prove that we're worthwhile. And I want you to consider with me, uh, why? Why are we so desperate? For this validation. Well, I believe it's anchored in our relationship with God. It has everything to do 
with our relationship with God. Um, there's a passage in Genesis, in chapter 9. Uh, if you know the story in the early parts of Genesis, uh, the flood has just taken place. Noah and his family are kind of restarting society. And God gives Noah this, this passage. And he's talking about uh, this idea that if someone kills another person, another human being, in chapter 9 of Genesis, God says this. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, I want you to consider what that's saying. What it's saying is, if someone murders another person, that person's life then should be taken because of the value of the first person who was killed. And they're valuable because they're made in the image of God. You see, that is important because it anchors our value and worth in God. That God created us in his image. Now, one of the controversial things going on in our society is this idea that human beings are just as valuable as animals. Now, that's a contentious topic. We can argue about that. Some people want to say, no, no, no. You know, um, humans are just as valuable as animals, and therefore, you know, we should treat animals the same way we treat humans. Now, I would say that's not the case because of passages like Genesis 9 that teach that we as human beings are unique. We're special. We're created in the image of God. Therefore, our value and worth is more significant. It's not the same to kill a human being as it is to kill an ant. Uh, with one is murder, the other is pest control. They're not the same thing. Now, that does not mean we are not called to be good stewards of God's creation. We are. Because we're made in His image, we should treat His creation carefully and with concern and with compassion. But we must maintain that we as human beings have an inherent value and worth that is unique. And it's grounded in this idea that our value, our honor, our worth is found in God. Without that, we're left scrambling. We're left trying to find ways to prove we're worthwhile. And that's our fifth point in your guide. We seek value, validation in all the wrong places. And these two parables give us a snapshot of this. That you could seek validation being the guest of a party, or you could seek validation in being a host of a party. And we're not limited to just a party. This happens in all areas of our lives. Whether it's your grades at school, you seek to validation in getting good grades. Or maybe it's through your athletic performance you seek validation. Or maybe it's through your performance at work. Or perhaps it's view how you present yourself with your clothes or, or your car or any number of things. The point is we're looking at all these ways to prove we're worthwhile, to validate who we are. If, if you noticed in our confession this morning... Uh, we referenced a passage from Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. It's in Jeremiah 2. And it's God speaking to his people. And God says this to his people. He says, My people have committed two evils. 
They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what God is saying? He's basically saying that we were created to get our worth and value in God. He's the living water that our souls need. But we've instead created these broken cisterns. That's anything else in creation. We, we've, we've tried to fill these cisterns up with water that will fulfill us and give us the validation that we want. But they're broken. They're cracked. They'll never hold water. And so whether we're sitting at a party, you know, thinking about who we're sitting next to, or we're writing up a guest list for who we're going to invite to our party, they're, broke, they're both broken cisterns. You see that? Uh, an old song by an artist named David Wilcox speaks to this idea well. It's called Break in the Cup. And I want to read some of the lyrics that he communicates this idea and how it can happen in a love relationship in a love relationship, listen to the way he describes it. He says, I try so hard to please you, to be the love that fills you up. I try to pour out sweet affection, but I think you got a broken cup because you can't believe I love you. I try to tell you that there's no doubt, but as soon as I fill you with all I've got, that little break will let it run right out. I cannot make you happy. I'm learning love and money never do. But I can pour myself out till I'm empty, trying to be just who you'd want me to. I cannot make you happy, even though our love is true. For there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of you. And so this is the point, that anything that we seek other than God is going to leave us empty, and disappointed, and ultimately will lead to our shame. That's part of the point of Jesus' parables, that if we seek that validation in these things in the world, they're going to leave us desperate because we're going to realize, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not of worth in and of myself. I, I don't have this thing that I'm longing for. Remember, guilt is this idea that I've done wrong. Shame is I am wrong. Guilt focuses on what I've done. Shame focuses on who I am. And when we try to prove ourselves in the things of the world, we're left with this empty feeling, you know, I'm not of value and worth in and of myself without God. And, and this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying you have a choice. You can choose this desperate search to find your validation in these other things or there's another option. And this is where Jesus brings this idea of humility. He begins to talk about humility. And at the end of the first parable, he, he makes this point in verse 11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is humility? How do we think about humility? Well, humility begins when we have a true understanding of ourselves. A true understanding of ourselves. Mother Teresa is held up as one of the, you know, is the epitome of humility and how she loved and served others. Mother Teresa was quoted as saying this, I'm always very glad 
that my slanderers should tell a trifling lie about me rather than the whole terrible truth. You ever felt like that? Uh, William Law, the 18th century English clergyman, said that he'd rather be hanged and his body thrown in a swamp than that anyone should be allowed to look into his heart. And finally, the, the Catholic friar from the 13th century, Francis of Assisi, you know, he was celebrated. He, he, he grew in his reputation so much that he asked a fellow monk, he assigned him this job to remind him of his failures and remind him of how little he deserved the praise he was receiving. Some of us need a friend like that, don't we? <laughs> uh, these are just three examples of people who, who, have a, who sought a true understanding of their hearts, a true understanding of reality, and that's where humility begins. Humility begins when we're willing to see reality and and face it and not pretend to be something we're not. Now, that that doesn't mean humility is you got to have a terrible view of yourself. That's not the point. The point is to have a true view of yourself, a true view of yourself, not a terrible view of yourself, but be able to confront reality. That's where humility begins. And I think we see humility in this second parable when Jesus calls us to uh, to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to a party. I think what he's saying to us is that's who we are spiritually. That we're poor, that we're crippled, that we're lame, that we're blind spiritually. And Jesus is saying just Remember, this is who you are. And therefore, to, to invite those in that condition physically into your part to your party is simply to recognize who you are spiritually before God. It's to have a true understanding of yourself. And so humility begins when we're willing to see the reality of who we are. But humility also happens when we begin to look less at ourselves and more at the needs of others. And, and, and Paul speaks to this in Philippians, the famous passage in chapter 2. Notice Paul's words. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You notice there, humility is, is really mo- mo- thinking more about other people. You see, Jesus' whole point with these parables is uh, whether you're the guest or the host, those people in the parables were thinking so much about the other people and getting their worth and validation from them. But Jesus is saying, um, you know, don't worry, don't be so consumed about your own value and so your own validation. And C.S. Lewis said it well in point seven of your sermon guide. His famous quote on humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. And that only comes, friends, from the gospel. From the gospel message that we are loved in Christ, that God loves us in Him by faith. And it's not what you do. It's not in how good a person you can be. But the forgiveness of your sins is given to us by Christ freely. 
And when you receive that and embrace that, my goodness, it frees you to not be so worried about validating yourself because you know you can't. And you allow that to happen in Christ. That's uh, point eight in your guide where Tim Keller puts it this way, that true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. Have you ever done that? You're talking to someone and you leave the conversation and you spend the next 30 minutes thinking about, man, did I sound like an idiot? You know, how did I come across that person? Do you think I, did I impress them? Man, I wish I hadn't said, you know, this, or I wish I hadn't done that. Can I tell you, that's often my Sunday afternoon. After preaching, I'm so worried. How did I come across? How did you perceive me? But gospel humility invites me into this place where I'm not worried about that. I don't have to validate myself with you. I can rest I can rest in how God views me. And that's point nine on your guide. God is our true and lasting source of validation. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us in these parables. That it's God who is our true and lasting source for validation. We stop scrambling to find our validation in these things of the world and in other people. And we rest in knowing that what counts is how God views us in Christ. You know, Jesus gives this warning, doesn't he? He says, and this is point 10 in your guide, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. In other words, you could be desperate to try to prove yourself, and maybe for a time you will. Maybe you'll receive the accolation or the, the recognition uh, the validation that you want. Maybe that'll come through your career. Maybe that'll come through the money that you get. But there will come a time when you, you will stand before God and he will humble you. All of us will stand before him and we will be humbled. And all the things we've tried to achieve in this world will mean nothing, nothing in that moment. And that's the warning Jesus is giving us here. That instead of seeking that now, today, find it in Christ. Find it in Him. And that's our 11, uh, point number 11 in your guide. That God promises to honor those who seek their validation in Jesus. I think that's the point Jesus is getting at in that second parable. In verses 13 and 14, you notice when Jesus talks about inviting the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to your party. Jesus tells us we'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What does that mean? Well, friends, what it means is that we are given a promise in the gospel. That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness becomes ours. We are just justified in him. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead... We will one day be raised from the dead and we will be justified. We will be validated fully and completely because of Jesus. So don't wait for that day. Find that validation now. Rest in him. That's what Jesus is encouraging us towards. And when we do that, some amazing things will happen. Some amazing things will happen. It will change how you react 
to various circumstances where in the past, maybe if you felt like somebody wasn't validating you or recognizing you or respecting you, maybe in the past you started to freak out. Maybe emotionally you, you, you unraveled. But if you're trusting in Christ and you're finding your validation in him, you won't be so desperate. It will begin to change how you engage those situations. You will find a peace. You will find a rest in him that will change your whole interaction in those situations. And that's what I want us to consider here as we begin to close, as we look at point number 12 in your sermon guide. Humility is visible in who you love and how you love them. You see, I think this idea of, of having a party for the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, Jesus is trying to say, you know, when you, when you come into relationship with me, it's going to change how you interact with others. And that's one of the values of our church, is that the gospel changes everything. That when we adopt the gospel worldview, it begins to change how we interact with each other. Uh, for example, um, I read a story of one pastor who was saying, you know, this parable changed how he goes to parties. When he goes to any party now, when he enters the room, he looks for people who, who are the least important. And he goes and seeks to talk to them first. Now, I want us to consider how that might change our interactions together as a church family. You know, we will often have meals together. And I want to challenge you, when we have meals, who do you sit with? Do you tend to sit with the people that you know? Do you tend to sit with the people who make you feel good about yourself? Do you tend to, to sit with the people you're comfortable with? Could it be that Jesus is inviting us to view those opportunities differently, even on Sunday morning when you come to worship? Who are you sitting with? Who are you interacting with? Could it be that God wants to challenge you to say, listen, when you find your validation in me, it frees you not to be worried of talking to someone you don't know. Because that's scary, isn't it? Because what could happen when you talk to someone you don't know? They may not like you. Or they may be uncomfortable talking with you. Or you may not know what to say to them. See, you're all wrapped up in yourself. You're all wrapped up in yourself, and the gospel will free you to say, hey, I will enter into this relationship and talk to these people, even if I don't know them. I will sit down for lunch with this person I don't know, because God is inviting me into these relationships as his servant. And in humility, I will seek opportunities to love others. You see, that's, that's how it begins to change how we do ministry. I saw this beautiful example when we lived in Santa Monica. We were involved at a church. I'll close with this story. Um, and they, uh, they had a ministry. A friend of mine had a ministry to a local uh, shelter who helped people get back on their feet and, and, and recover from um, various difficult situations they were dealing with in their life. And so this friend would host a, a, a uh, ice cream sundae social, so to speak, on Friday nights. And they would go to the shelter, and for the, the residents there at the shelter, they would have an ice cream party, basically. 
And so people from the church would go. Uh, we would stand behind the table with the different parts of the Sunday, right? The ice cream, the brownie, the, uh, the whipped cream, the sprinkles, the cherry, and serve the, the residents as they, as they would go through and get their ice cream Sunday. Now, if that's all we did, I think we would be missing out on what Jesus is inviting us into in this parable, this, this second parable. You see, we served the Sundays, but we didn't leave it there. We actually went and sat next to them. We ate with them. We talked with them. We shared life with them. You see, and that's what Jesus is inviting us into here as a church family. Is that when you begin to let the gospel seep into your heart, it changes how you interact with others. And so I'm inviting you into that today. How, how will this impact us as a church family? How will it change your view of yourself? Will it breed humility that seeks to love and serve others? That's what Jesus wants for us. And that's what I hope we will begin to see here at King's Church and then through us in our community. So let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these parables that teach us so much about ourselves and our desperate search for validation. And Lord, this is something that we will never overcome in this life, but we seek more and more each day to recognize and see it in our hearts and pray, Lord, for you to free us through your spirit as we rest in your love for us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.